Hello and welcome to this new podcast from Informa Pharma Intelligence's Asia content team for Scrip and the Pink Sheet. We have the whole team with us today, so without further ado, let's make some quick introductions. So we have Brian Yang, our senior editor based in Beijing, Jungwon Shin, who's our senior reporter in Seoul, Andrew Gangerdi, deputy Asia editor, and Viva Ravi, who's our sub-editor, both based in Mumbai. And finally, myself, Ian Haydock, who's regional editor-in-chief based in Tokyo. So today we're going to cover a broad selection of topics as chosen by the team, uh, picking out what we see as some notable developments in the biopharma industry in our various countries over the past few months. Now, obviously, the coronavirus pandemic has continued to dominate the news and, and dominate developments. But there have also been other goings on in the industry that have continued uh, alongside this. So we're going to kick off with Brian today, and he's going to take a look at what's really a red hot topic right now, uh, which is what China is doing around vaccine development for the coronavirus. So over to you, Brian. Hello. Uh, good day. This is Brian Yang. Um, as Ian has mentioned, um, as you all know, the coronavirus uh, is still uh, a global uh, uh, pandemic, um, and China is actually leading uh, the charge uh, for the vaccines development. Um, so today, I will for this episode from APEC team, I will provide a timeline for the COVID-19 vaccines uh, in China. Um, and also, I will give you some uh, ideas of uh, how one major player uh, said it's going to to really um, it, it, it currently at the finishing line, almost only one last kilometer to go before the success. And uh, secondly, I will take you to give you some background information on China's decision to join the WHO's COVAX. And thirdly, uh, I will talk briefly about new cluster of infections uh, currently ongoing in Qingdao. And finally, an outlook for the vaccine's uh, availabilities. First, let's start uh, with this uh, vaccine uh, that is going to really uh, uh, going to be uh, in China quite pretty soon. Uh, actually, starting October, the state-owned uh, company called the China National Biotech Group has actually started taking pre-orders for its COVID-19 vaccines uh, directly from the public in China. The country actually has numerous vaccine candidates in later stage development. Um, we, uh, the CNBG, uh, we, I mentioned uh, just now, has developed a two inactivated virus based candidates. And understandable uh, is going, uh, has uh, these two vaccines have gained an emergency use authorization for both products from China's regulators on July 22nd. Although this EUA was not disclosed until a month later. Also in phase three development are the adenovirus-based vaccine from Consino Biologics and another inactivated vaccine from Sinovac Biotech. Those two companies are privately owned developers. Immediately before the week-long National Day holiday in China, China 
National Biotech Group CEO said, there was just one last kilometer to go before the success. However, he did not specify whether or not that meant a full regulatory approval or mass immunization program in China. In order to reserve a, a vaccine, individuals in China can now uh, book their appointment with a mobile app and scan a QR code provided by the company. And then about two weeks, the person will be notified to go to a designated location to get the shots. The immunization expected to begin from November. It is understood that the vaccines are intended primarily for Chinese students and people traveling abroad for education or business. However, the general public can also pre-order the vaccines. Making appointment for vaccines through your phone, mobile phone, has become very popular in China today. This trend started from HPV vaccines. So far, over 70,000 reservations have made for the COVID-19 vaccine. The second point I want to talk is China's joining COVAX. As you know, COVAX is a WHO-organized vaccines global access facility program. This program is intended to ensure fair distribution of vaccines to countries around the world and to avoid the richest countries buying up supplies. Initiated in June, over 1,170 countries now have joined the COVAX. That includes over 76 rich countries. China has, has initially declined to join the initiative. But now, China said the move shows its commitment to equitable distribution of the vaccines and its rejection of vaccine nationalism. China has previously said its domestically developed vaccines would be a global public good and has collaborated with countries in the Middle East and Latin America to conduct phase three studies for the vaccines. The move to join the COVAX gives China a clear differentiation with the United States. Because China, after China joins the COVAX, the US will be the only rich country has not joined the program. So the third point I, I would like to briefly touch upon is this new surging infection cluster in China. As of October, there were 12 people were found to be affected with coronavirus in east coastal city of Qingdao. A city is known for its beer. Since the discovery, the health authorities soon started a mass testing. As of uh, this week, as many as 3 million have been tested for coronavirus. This is about one third of the total population of the city. It is also reported that half of the flights destined to Qingdao has been canceled. And many people who have, have got requested to report their travel history to the city. Looking forward, vaccines for 
uh, COVID-19 in China will become a public, global public good for everybody, or is going to be first available in China will be a big question we have to uh, concentrate on. That's all for today. And I look forward to, to talking more about this COVID-19 and other topics for the next episode. Bye now. Okay, thanks very much, Brian. So um, I think for sure the developments in China are going to be very closely watched, uh, you know, both in terms of the vaccine development and perhaps how the, the pandemic itself may play out uh, as well. So thanks very much for that. Okay, so we're going to change topics a bit now, and uh, Jung Won is going to talk a little around some recent developments in the Nash area in Korea. So over to you, Jung Won. Uh, thank you for the introduction, Ian. Um, today I'm going to talk briefly about recent Nash therapy development trends in South Korea and what's behind this. Nash has become a major therapeutic focus for South Korean pharma companies in the past few years. This trend has become more visible recently since Yuhan reached a series of large license deals with Gilead Sciences and Beringal Ingelheim, which are among the most active global players in Nash therapy development. According to Data Monitor Healthcare's recent Nash analysis report, Korea was among the top 15 countries in terms of number of clinical trials in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. In Asia, South Korea was the third largest NAFLD clinical trial place. It was progressing 20 trials as of May, which comes after Japan's 34 and China's 22 trials. And most recently, Hanmi Pharmaceutical has also reached a sizable Nash license deal with Merck and also announced a positive trial outcome of another Nash program at the recent ESOL meeting. And several other South Korean companies, such as LG Chem, are also actively developing Nash pipelines. So far, two South Korean Nash drug candidates, which were licensed out to Global Pharma since last year, were dual agonists. This underlines strong global interest in GLP-1 pipelines, as well as combination therapies and hybrid molecules in this disease sector. GLP-1 agonists have been shown to benefit NASH patients. According to data monitor analysts, therapies that target the NASH resolution endpoint are said to become the backbone of NASH treatment and are particularly useful in combination regimes. Combination therapies and hybrid molecules that bind to multiple receptors could maximize the beneficial outcomes. So what's behind this South Korean company's strong interest in development of NASH therapies? The company's recent strong development moves are largely in line with the global development and licensing activities in this area. Multinational farmers have long been trying to take the leading position in this blue ocean market. If the US FDA approves the first NASH therapy this year, expectations over the market will likely to further grow. There are currently no disease-specific approved therapies for NASH, so this creates a significant unmet need. Data Monitor expects the market landscape to grow dramatically in the next several years, driven by a surge of new product approvals in the space. 
South Korean companies are generally lagging in pace of clinical trials, but they are increasingly jumping into or expanding pipelines, largely because of active deal-making in this sector. And local brokerages say there are expectations that even if they are not the first movers, they can still generate substantial revenues after developing the drugs. This is because the country has a large number of liver disease patients, so this may guarantee marketability of their products even if the products are only launched in the domestic market. And South Korean NASH market and the number of NASH patients in the country are forecast to rise sharply in the next several years. That's it from me today. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much for that, Jungwon. And uh, NASH obviously is an area that we're seeing an awful lot of activity globally, um, both on the R&D and uh, and partnering side as well. So I think that's a really interesting update on uh, what's going on in Korea. So thanks very much for that. So now we're going to move over to Mumbai and Andrew is going to talk a little around some of the acceleration that we've seen in digital marketing trends um, in the pharma industry against the backdrop of the pandemic. So over to you, Andrew. Yeah, thanks, Ian. Um, so it's clearly a digital wave, if not a tsunami that we are dealing with. Uh, let me begin by spotlighting how all-encompassing digital engagement has become ever since the pandemic broke out. Perhaps uh, you know this is best reflected in what a pharma CEO in India recently said, noting how everyone is going through a new phase, a digital phase, if you like, in life, and being Zoombies, an obvious reference to the uh, extensive reliance on Zoom calls. He in fact went on to note how his digital joinings include a marriage of a close relative, birthdays and anniversaries, even school parent-teacher meetings, AGMs and board meetings, and left an open-ended question on whether even digital travel is going to become the norm. So that's the kind of level of extensive impact digitalization has happened. Uh, is happening. For pharma overall, uh, which has previously lagged some of the other sectors in terms of digital adoption, COVID has been a mega accelerator. It has crunched an estimated two years of action in the segment in, into just a few months. And we've seen companies rapidly readjusting customer engagement strategies, fast-tracking digital initiatives faced with limited or you know, no access to uh, physicians. Sales forces are being upskilled and digital interactions with HCPs are bringing in really interesting insights. Digital tools we've seen are being deployed and these include you know, websites for products, remote calling platforms to connect with HCPs, webinar platforms. We've seen digital asset management platforms where a repository or a library of stuff is available for accessing all kinds of digital assets. In the area of clinical trials, companies are de deploying risk-based monitoring using digital technology. And there's also very exciting digitization underway on the shop flow. But if I just focus on the commercial part, Despite all this, the overarching response from senior management executives in India and overseas is that face-to-face -face interactions with physicians will still remain relevant. Firms will essentially pivot to a hybrid face-to-face -face stroke virtual promotion kind of model. Though the ratios of the traditional model are expected to change sharply. For example, BI's MD estimated that if HCP to face-to-face -face interactions versus digital engagements was somewhere around the 80s to 20 ratio in the pre-COVID era, then in future we could be kind of inching closer to a 
even balance of 50s to 50. BI on its part has been able to connect with over 30,000 FCPs in India using digital channels. Similarly, if we touch upon Novartis, which has which had anyway prioritized digital efforts even pre-pandemic, it has unveiled several in- interesting in- initiatives. Its international speaker programs are now expanded onto web-based platforms, particularly those that reach out to medical professions professionals. For instance, uh, you know one of the key initiatives that I really like to touch upon is the one they use to engage with nephrologists and transplant surgeons through an online channel called Novartis Transtalk, and that's a web-based web-based platform with a subscription base of over 380,000 doctors. It's a dedicated hub for experts in the field of transplant to come together virtually and discuss key topics like better patient outcomes. For example, topics like infections in renal transplant patients, which tend to be most frequent in the first month after surgery, have been discussed with great interest. In China, Novartis has been able to reach 900,000 FCPs through social media platforms like WeChat and web-triggered emails, while in the U.S. It has seen a 1,500% increase in telemedicine. It said on one of the recent uh, earnings calls. Novartis, in fact, even went ahead with the first ever web-based full digital launch of an anti-cancer, Tabrecta, as you all may know, and it's reported a great response with positive customer feedback, with more than 20,000 visitors on its patient website and 9,000 visitors on the FCP website in the very first month of launch. If I move then to Indian firms, uh, let me take Sun Pharma, India's top-ranked drug firm, which launched 10 new products in, in the first quarter of uh, FY 2021. The company indicated that launching new products digitally comes with its own set of challenges, uh, especially because patient flow at doctor chambers is limited, and so there are fewer opportunities for these physicians to write a prescription for a new therapy or for a new molecule right away. But again, this is likely to be a short-term issue, and we've seen doctor chambers again filling up, not to pre-COVID levels, but nevertheless better. For but for established products, companies like Sun perhaps hold an advantage over competition, since its brands are well known to doctors, and digital en- engagement can kind of, you know, make this connect stronger during COVID times. And senior executives also say that doctors feel that a bigger brand will also come with better availability. So that's a benefit, especially in areas for chronic ailments. If I give you another example, uh, let's take Cipla. For example, it has supported on- onboarding of over 10,000 doctors on multiple telehealth platforms to facilitate on-demand consultations. It has engaged with 75,000 doctors through webinars, e-ad boards, and continuing medical education programs. So that's pretty significant as well. The final aspect I'd like to touch upon is the evolving commercial model, uh, which is also perhaps an attractive option for drugs with limited sales expectations or indications that are, you know, come at the lower earnings threshold and are not those billion-dollar blockbusters. Smaller firms at times can't take these products to the market since the traditional model is really high cost and very rep-loaded. A launch, for example, with 100 reps could typically entail an investment of 25 million dollars and associated costs. So that could be pretty unviable for a lot of molecules that come with a peak sales of 75 to 150 million. And smaller firms will find it really difficult to, you know, engage in such strategies. So digitization perhaps 
opens up more cost effective options for smaller players and also democratizes this commercialization model so all in all i think there's a lot happening on the digital front and we're going to see a lot more and the next or the evolving normal may well entail a significant resizing or then upskilling of the sales force by pharma as roles change and remote engagement functions become more entrenched or even preferred by xcps that's it for me with that i'd like to hand it back to ian to take things forward thanks okay thanks sanju I have to say, I love that expression, Zumbies. Um, I think many of us can uh, probably relate to that uh, at the moment. And it's also a really interesting illustration of, of how the pandemic has actually forced uh, this sort of acceleration of technology, which you know otherwise might have taken, as you mentioned, several years. So um, thanks very much for that. So um, staying in India, uh, we're going to move over to Viva now, who's going to talk a little bit around some of the Q2 trends in the Indian industry. So over to you, Viva. Thanks, Ian, and hello, everyone. What I'll do today is give a flavor of the Indian market's performance in September, as well as Q2, and how the pandemic is influencing this trajectory. So I was just going through retail and trade data that AIOCD, uh, the All India Organization of Chemists and Druggists puts out, and a few analyst reports. And these give an indication that the needle is beginning to shift in the domestic market after a decline that began in April. Till March, the market saw forward buying of anti-infectives, respiratory, and such drugs. And then the lockdown was imposed from March 24 in India. The impact of stocking up and drop in new prescriptions resulted in 11% fall in April and 9% in May. In September, however, the India farmer market has grown 4.45% year on year. Though this is much lower than the nearly 12% growth seen in September 2019, it's still an improvement over the previous two months. For the second quarter to September, IPM growth was muted at 1% year-on-year, with price increases compensating for a fall in volumes. Now, what this reflects overall is what we see on the ground. With lockdowns across several parts of the country beginning to ease, and stocks in uh, categories like antibiotics, cardiac, and anti-diabetes leveling off, there has been a slight pickup. Though sales in some segments like respiratory and ophthalmology are still down. Now, within this, the demand for COVID-19 drugs is seeing its own impact. After a phase where everyone was stocking up on paracetamol and hydroxychloroquine, sales of Gilead's remdesivir for licensees like Cipla, Heterodrugs, and Zydus Cadilla shot up. Though AIOCD figures do not reflect sales routed through hospitals or B2B channels, now, Favi Piravir has given companies like Glenmark, Sun Pharma, and Dr. Reddy's a fillip. In fact, Glenmark's Favi Flu brand of Favi Piravir has risen to become the third largest contributor to overall India sales. Then, drugs like vitamin D, now seen as immunity boosters, are seeing a spurt. In fact, Uprise D of Alkem saw a 26% jump in September sales. There's a report by Motilal Oswal Brokerage, and which has 
said that Glenmark with Favipiravir and other new launches has far outperformed peers in the second quarter with a whopping over 30% growth in Q2. Sipla and Ajanta Pharma have also done well with double digit growth of 11.5% and 12% growth respectively. Dr. Reddy's, Zydus Cadilla, Torrent and Lupin have barely moved the needle and Alembic Pharma has seen over a 3% growth. On the other hand, Sun Pharma, which didn't have a great first quarter either, has seen over a 3% decline in sales. Biocon has done much worse with a 10% fall and Natco brings up the bottom with a drop of 16% in Q2 domestic sales. Indian companies will soon begin declaring their second quarter results. And given that the share of domestic revenues varies for each, the impact of these numbers in the overall scheme of things will differ. We also need to keep in mind that for most of the large firms, US and Europe contribute majority of their revenues. So apart from COVID-19 related factors in those regions, fluctuation in the value of the Indian rupee versus those currencies will also have a bearing on how, how things finally shape up during Q2. However, one trend that is likely to continue from the first that began in the first quarter is higher API sales. And with the Indian government scheme to encourage production of bulk drugs, this slice of the pie is only likely to get bigger. That's it from me. Over to you, Ian, for your section. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much for that, Viva. So finally for Japan, I'd just like to touch briefly on some non-virus related corporate trends of the past few months. Uh, we've seen some pretty big licensing and divestment deals that are indicative of several trends. Probably most notably was uh, Daiichi Sankyo's second huge global licensing deal with AstraZeneca for an antibody drug conjugate in July which was worth up to about $6 billion, um, which added to its first similar agreement for another um, ADC in March 29, which was valued at about $6.9 billion. So together we're looking at about $13 billion worth potentially uh, for these two deals, which is, uh, is highly significant. And I think this is notable not only because of the size of these, but um, that back a few years, Daiichi was really uh, didn't really have much of a presence in oncology and was very heavily reliant globally on a particular blood pressure drug, Ormazartan, which is now being genericized in a lot of markets. So it has really managed to undertake this strategic shift into oncology um, over the past few years and has also developed uh, an in-house ADC platform, which has managed to produce these highly attractive candidates um, to uh, a big pharma firm has obviously expressed interest in these now on a global basis. So I think it's just a really notable turnaround um, in focus uh, within a company in Japan, um, as really illustrated by those two big deals. And Daiichi did tell me that um, while partnering is important for them, they will consider it on a case-by-case -case basis. So it doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to do it for every 
asset that they have, but um, they will look at them and then consider what's the best path forward to to optimize access to patients uh, and obviously on the the commercial side of things as well. So I think that we can expect more global alliances towards uh, their stated goal. And they said already that um, a few years ago that they were looking for oncology revenues um, of about um, over 500 billion yen in fiscal 2025. And uh, again, when you consider this is from a base of almost nothing a few years ago, I think it's very significant. And then I think one other big notable move that we've seen over the past few months in Japan uh, was Takeda's plan to to hive off its OTC business in the country. Uh, there have been rumours swirling around this for a long time. Um, this was going to happen and um, they finally announced the deal in August, uh, which is worth about $2.3 billion with the US private equity group Blackstone. And some people are expecting the deal to involve um, Taisho, which is uh, Japan's largest OTC company. Uh, but in the end, it was interesting that a P group has, has picked this up. And uh, Blackstone has said that it wants to develop the business, um, particularly in Asia. And, you know, whether they will be looking for an exit in a few years um, is not really clear yet. But this is the normal PE model. So um, I think that is possibly likely. And together with a string of other divestments that uh, Takeda has made since it completed the Shire acquisition in early 29, uh, the sale of its OTC business in Japan took it past a target of $10 billion worth of of sell-offs since the Shire integration. Um, So it's now well past that strategic figure. And it's mainly using the funds to to pay down the debts associated with the, uh, the Shire deal. And I think the other notable thing about this transaction was um, also how it reinforced Decatur's commitment to its global prescription business and related R&D in the prescription sector. So it's very much been saying that it's focusing um, on innovation and looking to to launch its new and novel products, um, even in the less mature markets uh, globally. So that the the move fits in very well with that, uh, that strategy. So looking around at some of the other deals over the past few months, we've seen some smaller acquisitions. Um, these have included Otsuka Farmers buyout of the US digital health venture Proteus Digital. And it got that company for what's basically a bargain basement price of about uh, $15 million. And remember that going back uh, four or five years, Proteus was actually valued by investors as at up, at up to around $1.5 billion. So um, there've been various issues at the company. So um, I think Otsuka took the opportunity to uh, to make that acquisition. And then in September, we saw Santen buy the US eye care firm iBance for about $225 million. Again, this, is, this was a bit of a smaller deal. Um, but I think the, the rationale here was that Santen wanted to move into the US uh, where it hasn't really had much of a presence. And um, Ivance is also providing a ready-made small field force that they can uh, potentially roll out some of their other products in the US. And then just this week, Jungwon's reported on a big deal with um, Ono and Korea's SK Bio. This is worth up to about $500 million in total and uh, covers the epilepsy area. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of activity. And I think this is significant because it shows that even despite the pandemic, uh, pharma firms are continuing to 
take steps to to tighten their business focus, uh, particularly on innovation and on key markets where they want to to build a presence, and also on filling in some pipeline gaps where they feel like uh, they need a, a stronger presence, and uh, also in uh, new technologies as well. So, for example, the Oscar deal was very much geared towards building up their presence uh, in various forms of digital health. So. To me, I just see these as quite encouraging signs um, of the resilience of the pharma sector as a whole. And we've also seen very strong investment figures, uh, both in the US and the UK recently. And I think it shows that still, in large part, business as usual is carrying on in pharma, despite all the impacts of the, uh, the pandemic. So I fully expect to see some more moves before the end of the year, possibly in the digital health space. Um, as Andrew's mentioned, you know, this is something that companies are very much uh, building up at the moment and uh, building their capabilities in remote detailing and physician education and uh, to enable better connectivity between global teams, uh, given the ongoing situation. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how that develops. OK, that wraps up the podcast from the APAC team for this time. We hope you've enjoyed it and thanks very much for listening. And don't forget to check out all the great content from our global teams in Script and Pink Sheet. Bye for now.